You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Let's look to God again as we get ready to open up his word. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. We pray that you would have your way. We pray that we would treat you as holy, that your name would be hallowed. The way that we worship you today, the way that we talk about you, we pray that your kingdom come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would feed us both physically and spiritually right now. And I pray that as we look at some things that we already know about you, that you would remind us of them and that they would be fresh in our minds. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're beginning a four-week series uh, on what we believe and what we are to be devoted to, what we believe and what we're to be devoted to. Now, if you've been at our church for any length of time, you know that we usually preach verse by verse through the Bible uh, or section by section through the Bible. Um, Today, sometimes in the summer, what we'll do is we'll preach topically. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks. We're going to be preaching topically. We're not going to be looking at any one passage. Actually, we're going to be looking at several passages for the next couple of weeks. Uh, based on a confessional statement known as the Apostles' Creed. Uh, The Apostles' Creed. Now, with any kind of uh, confessional statement or uh, creed, there's always a degree of controversy uh, regarding those. Because what a a creed is, or what a confession is, is that it takes some very large um, amount of information about a certain topic, and it condenses it into... Um, simple statements. Uh, For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a very important document for the Reformed Church, um, it takes a big statement about God and condenses it into uh, the thousands, the tens of thousands of things that you read about God in the Bible, it condenses them into a few hundred words. It brings all those things uh, together in a concise statement. The problem is that the bigger the document is, the bigger the Confession of uh, of Faith is, the less Um, universal it is. For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith is adopted by the Reformed churches, and there's a lot of things that every Christian would say, yes, absolutely true, absolutely true, but other things that they might say, no, I don't know if I necessarily believe that or think that that's what the Bible teaches. As a result of that, there are some churches who have adopted the mantra of no creed but the Bible. No creed but the Bible. And although that may sound spiritual, I think that as a result of that, uh, people can veer off into error because they don't have something to guide them. Now, I know immediately people are like, whoa, slow down. The Holy Spirit is the one that guides us into all truth. And any Christian, everyone who's a Christian has the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, um, the Holy Spirit will remind you of the things that I have taught you. And to that I say, yes, amen, amen, amen. But at the same time, do you ever wonder why... If the Holy Spirit was all we needed, why God appointed teachers in the church? God has given teachers in the church, uh, people who are gifted by God's Holy Spirit to study the Word of God 
and to teach it, to take those difficult things in the Word of God and to explain them. Now, there are things in the Bible, particularly pertaining to salvation, that are so clear and so easy to understand that just a child reading them could understand them. But there are other things which are difficult to understand. And so uh, we need teachers, and God has set up teachers in his church. And throughout history, some of those teachers have taken these big, um, the whole Bible, and condensed it into specific summary statements so that it's easier um, to navigate through the teachings of the Bible. Once again, the Westminster Confession of Faith is an example of that. Uh, and in addition to, it talks about many topics. It'll talk about God. It'll talk about sin. It'll talk about the church. It'll talk about salvation. It'll talk about the end times, condensed in smaller, uh, concise statements. For the next two weeks, we are going to be looking at a uh, creed known as the Apostles' Creed. It is even more concise than any other statements, um, any other creedal statement that we have out of there. Whereas the Westminster Confession may have taken hundreds of words to talk about God, the Father, the uh, Apostles' Creed uses just nine words to describe God the Father. We're going to look at those today. Now, a creed or a confessional statement does not replace the Word of God. Okay? I just have to make that clear. It's not saying, we have the creed, therefore we don't need the Word of God. We have this confessional statement, therefore we don't need the Word of God. No, it does not replace the Word of God. It summarizes it and explains it in places where it may be confusing. Now, lest you think that a creed or a confessional statement is not biblical, what I want to do is, is you to consider some of the, uh, the Bible, because in several places in the Bible, I see what me, might be known as creedal statements or summaries um, of other biblical truths. For example, Old Testament. If you've ever read the Old Testament, particularly Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you know those books that are really, really difficult to get through, what you would realize is that there is over 600 laws given to the people of God, dictating how they are to relate with God and how they are to relate with one another. For example, if you sin unintentionally, you bring this sacrifice to God, you give it to the priest. The priest does this to it. The priest eats this portion of it. You eat this portion of it. Or the whole thing is burned up. Okay, you got tons and tons of pages regarding that. Or if a man has an ox that he knows was prone to gore and it gets out and it kills someone, then you kill the ox and you kill the man as well because he should have locked him up. If you borrow your neighbor's cloak, return it before the sun goes down because he uses it to sleep in. All right. If you borrow from your neighbor, or if your neighbor borrows from you, don't take interest from them. We have hundreds of laws regarding how we are to relate with God and how we are to relate with one another. Those 600 laws are summarized in 10 laws, right? Known as the 10 commandments, which tell us how we are to relate with God and how we are to relate with one another. The first four deal with how we relate to God. And the last six deal with how we are to relate with one another, beginning with honor your father and mother, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? And right on down the line. So it's a summary statement. And then you take those 10 and they are further condensed into two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength 
and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are concise statements. What are you trying to say, God? Here's what I'm trying to say. All these laws, love me with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, got it. Therefore, I interpret all of those laws in light of those two laws. Okay, that is a concise statement. Moving on to the New Testament. The New Testament literally spends thousands upon thousands of words explaining who Jesus was, is, what Jesus did, how he did it, why he did it, and how it applies to us. We know this as the gospel. The Bible calls it the gospel. What I want you to do is I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be turning a lot, um, so you can either try to keep up or you can just listen. Um, you can write down the references and look them up later. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 15 is the first one that we are in. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. What we have here in this is we have a concise, all the things that the New Testament says about Jesus and what he did is summarized in a very simple statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, and it says this, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What did you receive, Paul? Here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There it is. That is a concise statement of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Thousands of words in those books, and yet Paul summarizes them in this very concise confessional statement. 27 words summarizing thousands and thousands of words. An even shorter confessional statement, you don't have to turn here, is in Romans 10, 9, which says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. All right, that is a very concise confessional statement, which sums up the entire New Testament. Therefore, I believe that concise confessional statements are very important, very useful, and I believe that they are also biblical as well. So we're gonna look at the Apostles' Creed for the next two weeks. Now, the current form, and we're going to read the Apostles' Creed in a moment, in case you're like, what in the world are you talking about, right? We will read that in a moment. Um, the current form that we have of it dates really to around the 6th to 8th century A.D. Um, there is evidence that it was actually, some form of it was quoted or recited in the 2nd century A.D. church. Some actually believe that the Apostles wrote the Apostles' Creed, and although that is highly unlikely, what we will see is that the statements in the Apostles' Creed really do reflect the teachings of the New Testament apostles, um, and therefore, as they were writing the words of God. Uh, what I hope to demonstrate is that this very brief confessional statement summarizes what is basic to Christianity, what we are called to believe, because I, I believe it's statements, and that's what I hope to do, are rooted in the truths of Scripture. Okay, so before we proceed, let me read it, okay, um, so that you know where we're coming from. <laughs> Here's what the Apostles' Creed says. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Okay, now there are some confusing statements in this, and we will clarify them as we move along, okay? So just stick with me. What we notice, first of all, is that it begins with a statement of personal belief. Personal belief. I believe, okay? Now here's the importance of that. You cannot ride into heaven on the coattails of your parents. You cannot ride into heaven on the coattails of the church. I went to church all my life. No, you have to make this personal. You are the one who has to believe, okay? That's why it says, I believe, I believe. And we're gonna talk about what it is that we are to believe. In the Bible, we must believe these teachings, what we learn about God, about humanity, and the rest of the world. And certainly, believing, the importance of believing is consistent with the teaching of the New Testament, okay? I just wanna demonstrate this. I don't think I need to, but I'm going to, okay? Uh, the word believe is used nearly 100 times in the Gospel of John alone. All right, I want you to turn to John chapter 20 uh, with me. Once again, if you want to follow along, uh, do that. If you don't, uh, then you don't have to. Um, John uses the word believe, 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 believe over and over and over again to where if you don't get that's the message of the book, then you have missed the message of the book. And in case you did miss the message of the book, John, in John chapter 20, near the end, says, I'm going to tell you exactly why I wrote all these thousands and thousands of words about what Jesus did and what he taught. And here's what he says. John chapter 20, verse 30 says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name period end of sentence that's the whole reason i'm writing this is so that you believe in jesus that he is the son of god if we were to look at the book of acts what we would see is that the word believe is used nearly 40 times okay you're starting to see a pattern in the new testament right if you combine the word believe with its synonym faith in the book of Romans, what you would see is that there's about 60 occurrences of those two words. Once again, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, we have another, we just referred to it a few minutes ago, but a concise statement about how important it is to believe. He says this in Romans 10, 9 through 10, Paul speaking through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, that's declared righteous before God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Okay, so you see that the Bible 
the New Testament and the Old Testament is all about personal belief. You have to believe in the things that we're going to talk about because they are absolutely essential. Now, let me just quickly state this. Believing, you have to get this. Believing is not simply making a mental assent to these things. It is not simply, yes, I believe the fact that God exists. Yes, I believe the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus died on the cross. I believe those things in a just a purely mental way, as a matter of fact. The reason that that is not the kind of believing that the Bible talks about is because according to James, even the demons believe that, right? Even the demons are like, God, does he exist? Absolutely, I believe that God exists. Jesus being God, absolutely, we believe that Jesus is God. Did Jesus die on the cross? We don't deny it. We were there, we saw him die on the cross. They all believe that, but they don't believe it to the saving of their souls, okay? They can't because there's no salvation for them. But we don't just believe facts about that. We trust in those facts. We trust that what the Bible says about God truly is about, is what is true of God. That what the Bible says that who Jesus was and what he did is actually what who Jesus was and what he did for us. Faith is resting our weight on those things. It is trusting in those things and saying, I believe that I am on my way to an eternity away from you, but that if I embrace Jesus and put my trust in him, that I will be made right with God. It's not just the facts, people. It is actually giving your life over to him and saying, I am trusting you with all of this because I have no hope outside of you. So believing is more than just believing the facts. Okay, for this reason, you and I must listen very carefully to what it is that we are to believe in, and that's what we're going to be talking about. If you have already believed in Jesus, then these two messages that we're going to talk about, I hope my prayers that they would strengthen your faith. I pray that you would see God afresh and anew, Jesus, the Holy Spirit afresh and anew, and just be like, oh, goodness, he's so wonderful, he's so awesome. And I pray that it would strengthen your witness for others, that you just want to go into your places of work, your places of employment, your places of, of school, your neighborhoods, and just say, I got to tell you, I got to tell you about this God that I serve, that the Bible talks about. If you have not believed, I am praying, praying that by the end of today's service, and particularly by the end of next week's services, that you know exactly what God is calling you to do, and that is to believe on him okay so that's where we're going all right so we know that we are to believe the rest of the creed tells us what we are to believe and what you notice before we get into anything is that this is what is known as a trinitarian confession all right that's one of those big churchy words right trinitarian we as a church believe in the trinity we believe in god the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, this is a mystery that no one understands. You can give a ton of illustrations, none of them clarify who God is. How God can be one, according to Deuteronomy chapter six, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and yet how that one God can exist in three distinct persons, all fully God, in full accord with one another. We do not understand that. And I don't mean to be discouraging, but I am convinced that even when we get to heaven, we will not fully understand it either. We'll understand a whole lot more, but we will not understand this. What I don't want you to do is I don't want you to get hung up on this because this has been a source of ridicule for Christianity because it defies logic. So your God is one God and yet three gods, right? Let me get that right. And so it's a source of ridicule. And here's what I would say. No, we can't understand it, but just because we can't understand something, and I've said this many times before, doesn't mean that it's not true. There's a lot of things in this world that we cannot explain, but it doesn't mean that they're not true. One of the examples that I was thinking of is this, is think about human consciousness, right? We're all material beings, right? In our brains, there's a bunch of neurons, there's a bunch of chemicals that are being released, and somehow those chemicals give us this immaterial thing known as consciousness. The ability to think and to reason and to talk and to have emotions such as fear or happiness or whatever else it may be. You go to a funeral, right? Or, or someone dies right away. They still have all the same chemicals that you have. But there's something missing there, right? There's that immaterial part of them. I don't think anyone can explain that, but yet we don't deny that it's there, right? We still embrace it. There's a lot of things that we cannot explain, but we know that they're still true. So we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What you'll also notice in this confession is that there is a greater emphasis on the Son. There's a greater emphasis on the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, for example, the Holy Spirit is described in three words. I believe in the Holy Spirit, right? Three words. The Father is described with a whopping nine words. And then the Son, Jesus, is described with 72 words. This statement, here's another big theological term, is Christological. It is about Christ. Now, does that mean that Christ is more important than the Father and the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not, right? It is not a competition in the Trinity, all right? And it's not like the Holy Spirit and the Father are like, oh, it's all about Jesus. More, more songs are written about Jesus than about us. Like, this is not fair, you know? How come he gets all the attention? No, it is not about that. Because the Father sent the Son to be glorified, right? And the Holy Spirit, what is the point of the Holy Spirit? What is his role? What is his mission? To point to who? The Son, right? Why? Because the Son actually came down to be a human being so that he could live the life that you and I could not live and that he was punished for us. And because when we believe that he did what he did for us, then we are saved. And so the Holy Spirit's like, look at the Son. Look at the Son that's where salvation is. And the Father's like, I sent my son. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he wonderful? And that's why this confession is mostly Christological. It is pointing to the Son. Because there is salvation in no other name, except for the name of Jesus. 
right? He is all about Jesus, okay? So, um, so we will see that it is Christological, but the primary focus of the, the Gospels is Jesus. The prophets of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Moses, according to Jesus, spoke of Jesus, right? It is all about Jesus. Okay, so this short confession has a lot to say about the Son, but it begins with the Father, and so that's where we're going to begin as well. So here's what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Okay, so the first thing that we confess uh, believing in is God. God. Uh, God is the only true and living God. We confess to believing in the God who created the universe and all that is in it. We believe in a God who created everything that we see and everything that we don't see as well. We believe in a God who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, and who is everywhere present. And we believe in a God who everyone, everyone will answer to one day, and a God to whom will, who will not answer to anyone himself. God does not answer to any of us. If you think about this, there's a lot of people these days who think that God has a lot of explaining to do, right? You got a lot of explaining to do, God, right? Look at this. If you're truly all powerful and all good, then tell me about this. And they just call God into the courtroom, right? And they start to blaspheme his name. And if you think about this, God's approval ratings are pretty horrible in the world, right? If God was running for re-election, he would not get re-elected. But you know what? None of that moves Almighty God. None of it moves him. He does not care what we think about him. It doesn't move him. He's not like, oh, how can I do, I need a PR person. Holy Spirit, this is your job. Make me look better, right? Maybe we can dial it back a little bit here in terms of sin and my judgment. I don't want to. No. God does not answer to anyone. He lays down what he requires, and we are to follow that. Because if he did anything else, he would be dishonest in giving us a false hope, and he will not do that. So believing in God as the almighty uh, uh, creator of the universe has several implications. The first is this, that he, and he alone rules, okay? Now, I know this goes without saying, and, and this is the thing, is you're not going to learn anything new over the next couple of weeks, but you need to hear this stuff again. God rules. God rules. When you make something out of nothing, you own it until or unless you transfer that ownership to someone else. Okay? If you make something out of nothing, you own it unless you transfer it, transfer ownership to someone else. And there's no indication in the Bible that God ever transferred ownership of his creation to someone else. Now you might say, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. I've read my Bible. We know that Satan plunged this whole world into sin. We know that Satan is called the prince in the power of this air. We know, according to 1 John, that the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. And we know that when Jesus was tempted up in the wilderness, that Satan took him up in this place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, do you want them? 
bow down and I will give them to you. Bow down before me and I will give you all the kings of the world, implying that Satan owned them. Here's the problem with that. If God at any point ever said, I'm giving you ownership of it all, you care for it, you sustain it, everything would go out of existence, right? Nothing would be here anymore because according to Colossians 1, Jesus created it all and does what else? Upholds it all, sustains it all, all right? So this world, God never transferred ownership of it to Satan. God created it all. He owns everything, including us. Therefore, God is the one who makes the rules. And all of creation is to follow those rules. The animals obey God. The wind and the waves obey God. The planets were put into orbit by God. He charts their course. The stars he puts in the sky and names them and calls them out one by one, and not one of them is missing. God is in complete control. I want you to turn with me. Uh, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Um, if you have an actual physical Bible, it's near the middle of it. Um, if you have an app, then you just look for Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 46. <clears throat> this is just literally one of hundreds of passages that talk about God being in control. We can't go through all of them. But I want you to listen. This is the very word of God. Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 9. This is God speaking, and I love this, love this. It says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's no none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Notice that he does not say, this is what I hope to do. I'm really planning on this. I'm really banking on this. No, he says, I have declared it, and guess what? I will do it. I have purposed it, and guess what? It will be accomplished. People, who is in control? God is in control, okay? Once again, this implies that what he commands, we must follow. Why? Why? Is this a kind of like, uh, I can't stand following God. No, this is, this is what it is. Why should we follow him? We should follow him because he made everything, he knows how everything works, and he knows what is best for everything. Okay? Just one example, I think, about our current culture, where we say, ah, God, you're kind of outdated, you're kind of old-fashioned. We'll start to determine what we believe about certain things. So our culture has said, we will redefine marriage. I know that you said one man, one woman their whole life, but nah. We're going to redefine that, and we're going to say uh, men can marry men, women can marry women, okay? And I know that you said he created them male and female and just had these two genders. We're going to redefine that, and we're going to bring in dozens and dozens of genders. 
Well, the result is that this world has never been more confused than it is now. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 28, God, in, in chapter 28, he's laying forth, he says this, if you will be diligent to obey all that I've commanded you, and then he just lists blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. But then he says, but if you will not, then all these curses will come upon you. And one of the curses that he says is this, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. Does that not describe our current culture? We do not know which way is up. We are confused. And the reason that we're confused is because we said, no, God, you will not tell us what is right and what is wrong. You will not tell us what to believe in. We will dictate our own morality. And that's what we've done. And then we're confused, and we wonder why we're confused. Once again, God created everything, knows how it all works, and knows what is best for it. Therefore, God is the only one who knows how to properly care for everything, including you and me. He cares for everything, great and small, and he especially cares for us, his most precious creation. Once again, I know we're turning a lot. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, beginning of verse 25, illustrates this point so very beautifully and so very wonderfully. And we're also going to be introduced to a new uh, title for God that the Apostles' Creed brings out as well. But Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 32 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. What are those? Those are the necessities of life, right? That's, that's everything that we need, right? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or, or what shall we drink, or, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. This verse points, as I said, to another reality concerning God, and that he is Father. He is Father. The Apostles' Creed calls him Father, God the Father Almighty and this scripture in Matthew chapter 6 um, bears that reality as well. I don't know if you take time to ponder this, because we hear this stuff and it's just like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that, I know that. But have you contemplated the fact that God, that you, as a mere human being, get to call the God who created everything, who placed the trillions and trillions of stars in the sky, who sustains it and upholds it all, that you get to call him by the intimate title of Father. You and I get to call him 
Father. And the reason that we get to call him Father is because the New Testament brings in this wonderful, wonderful truth of adoption. That we are adopted into the family of God. Jesus, if you, if you will, is the natural born son, the only begotten son of the Father. But we are all sons and daughters of the Father as well because we have been adopted into his family. Such a wonderful truth with such wonderful implications. As his children, our Heavenly Father provides for us. He protects us. He listens to us. He answers us. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to, to think about that. Years ago, I remember hearing a story about a very wealthy and influential owner of a, of a large business who had a, a ton of people who were vying for his attention, a ton of people who uh, he was, uh, uh, that were under him, uh, that were looking to him uh, for their uh, sustaining their life and, and everything, and, and uh, the pressures that went around along with this. And he would work um, many times from his office and, but other times he had an office at his home. And one time he was working and he had his computer up and his, his papers all over the desk and the phone. And as he was working, his seven to eight-year-old son walks into the room. And he's on the phone. And what he did is he, he motioned to his son for a second and said, hold on. And then he quickly got off the phone, closed his computer, pushed the papers aside, and gave his son his undivided attention. That is what our Father does for us. As insignificant as we may think we are, when we call upon our Father, we have his complete and undivided attention. He hears us when we call out to him. As adopted children, we also have a glorious inheritance, a glorious inheritance. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to show you two passages. I'm going to read John chapter 1, uh, verse 12 to you, and then we'll go to Romans chapter 8. We have a glorious inheritance. All that the Father owns, which is what? What does God the Father own? Everything, yeah, right? All that the Father owns, we also own. Did you ever think of that? We own it all. Two passages point to that reality. Uh, John chapter 1 uh, verse 12 says this, But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Is that that biblical truth of believing again? He gave them the right to be called to become children of God. And then Romans 8, beginning in verse 14, he says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's an intimate term, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Isn't that awesome? Heirs of God. Followers with Christ. Once again, what does Christ inherit? Everything. And we are fellow heirs with Christ, so we inherit everything as well. 
And so we don't put our hope in this world only, trying to grab everything that we can because we have a new heaven and a new earth coming, and it is ours. Beloved, we are in the family of God. We are under his protection and his provision. And I just want to stop here just quickly and say that I know in a room like this, there are people who grew up with horrible fathers. I know there are people who had abusive fathers, whether they were uh, uh, sexually abusive or verbally abusive or physically abusive. And what I want to say about that is don't ever think that God is anything like them. Don't ever let their, how they treated you, influence how you view God, because God is nothing like them. Nothing like them at all. God is the perfect example of what a father is. They failed miserably. God does not get your ideas of, of, about God the Father from his word himself. Don't let their treatment influence how you view God. God the Father, your heavenly Father, loves you. I said it before, he made you, he knows you, he knows what is best for you. And if you will listen to and obey him, then you will flourish and have joy like you've never had before. Now, by saying that, I do not mean that all your troubles are gone. You will never have sickness again. You will never have debt again. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that even in the midst of all of that pain, all of those sufferings, all of those physical problems that you may have, you will have a joy because you know that this life is not all there is and that he will come back one day and that this corruptible... This mortal body, which is subject to disease and death, will put on incorruption, and all the disease and all the pain and all the sorrow will be wiped away. And all these temporal things in our life, right? Cars that break down and rust, computers that go out of date, all that stuff will be gone, and we will be made new, and we will have an inheritance that does not fade away, that cannot be stolen from us ever. That's what I'm talking about, that joy, even the worst of circumstances, because you know that God is working all things together for your good, and you'll be with him one day in paradise forever. So that's what we learned from the confession about God. Now, obviously, there's a ton more that we can say about God. Um, we did not even begin to exhaust uh, God the Father, but I want to quickly go into the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. We're not going to get very far at all, so don't worry. Be like, oh my goodness, he just spent you know, 40 minutes on that, and now he's going to get into Jesus. We're not going to get very far, but I do want to start because the next statement is this. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Once again, we have that statement of personal belief. I believe in Jesus Christ. Belief in these things is what makes us truly children of God. And in this simple statement, what we have is we have three titles for Jesus. It starts with his name, and then there are three titles that are given regarding him. Christ, Son, and Lord. And we're going to get into those next time. But I want to ask, who is Jesus? Well, the uh, creed, the Apostles' Creed, goes on to say, concerning Jesus, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So the first question is this, is that true? Was he conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? And I hope that you're saying, yes, it is. Okay, can we prove that? Yes, Matthew chapter 1, if you want to turn there, you can join me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 23 says this. After the genealogy of Jesus, after he says, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, uh, he says this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame. Uh, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. From this passage, what we see is we see that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary, not by a human father, Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit of God. All right? Thus making Jesus both human and divine. A son of mankind, Mary, and a son of God. Just like the Trinity, where we couldn't wrap our minds around this, neither can we wrap our minds around this truth either. This is confusing that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, I want to make very clear, Jesus is not half God and half man. Jesus did not have a human body only and a divine mind. Jesus um, did not appear to be human, but was really divine. Jesus was human, and Jesus was divine. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. You don't get it. I don't get it. No one gets it. All right? But this is what the Bible teaches. We cannot understand it, but we believe and embrace it. And this is what sets Christianity apart from many of the other major religions and cults in the world, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. His conception was by the power of the Holy Spirit. That was one of the things that I wanted you to see from the Matthew passage. The other thing that I want you to take notice of is his name that was given to him. The Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Now, today's culture, there's a lot of reasons why, we, why parents choose the names that they choose for their kids. It might be a relative that they had in the past. I want to name him after Uncle Joe or something like that, uh, that they really liked, or a friend. Or it might be after a celebrity, right? Oh, I really like this celebrity, so I'm going to name my daughter that. Or it might just be because I like this name. I've always liked this name. And so they name him after a, a variety of reasons. But names in the Bible were very significant, and Jesus' name is the best example of this. Because according to Matthew 1.21, Joseph was said this, Oh, it's not going to be your son. It's going to be the Son of God. And here's the name that you will give him, Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves, or the Lord saves. Jesus' primary mission in this world was to save sinners. In fact, he said as much in Luke chapter 19. When he said this of himself, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Why did I come here? To seek and to save that which was lost. Hence my name, Yahweh saves. And here's what I want to close with. Save from what? Lost in what way? What are you talking about? What do I need to be saved from? I want to answer those questions because in those two questions we find 
the gospel. We find the gospel, and you need to hear the gospel. I need to hear the gospel. We were lost. We had wandered away from God and into sin. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, they rebelled against God. They immediately died. They were immediately separated from God, spiritually speaking. And an immediate transfer of loyalty took place to where they now pledge their loyalty to Satan and no longer God. They no longer listened to God. They no longer followed him. They followed their own evil desires. And this transfer of loyalty does not in any way imply a transfer of jurisdiction. All right? God never lost jurisdiction. So like, hey, I'm under a new master. You can't punish me for anything. No. They were still under the jurisdiction of God who owns everything. And even though they had pledged loyalty to Satan, even though we have pledged loyalty to Satan with our actions, and by that I don't mean that we're Satan worshipers, right? I mean that we're drawing pentagrams and sacrificing cats or something like that. That's not what I say. I'm talking about worshiping Satan. What I'm talking about is that we have said, Satan, I will listen to you. You know what's best for me. You know where my greatest joy can be. And we follow him all the time. And that's what I mean by that, that we have sinned against uh, God. We are loyal to Satan, but that does not mean that we will escape for the crimes that we've committed against God. God will find us. He never lost us. Okay, you know that. Um, he will judge us, and he will punish us forever in what the Bible calls the lake of fire. But Jesus, Yahweh saves, came to save us from the wrath of God that we deserve if God is to remain just, he has to punish sin. He has to punish sin. He has to punish sinners. And what he did is he said, I will not punish you. I will punish my son who came in the form of humanity, human flesh, and lived the life that you could not live. And then went to the cross and I punished him for every lie that you ever told, every lustful thought that you ever had, every selfish act that you ever had. I punished my son because I loved you. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live and then was punished for our sins. God's wrath was redirected away from us and on to his son. And so now the love of God is given to us. This is why his name is called Jesus, because he saves us, his people, from our sins. And here's what I want to say. If you have not personally exercised faith in Jesus, do so today. Please do not leave this place. Please come and talk to me. I, I've said this before. I will drop every other conversation that I'm having with anyone else, and I will say, let's go and talk. All right? Come, find me, or talk to someone who you know can introduce you to Jesus, whether you are five or 85. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to children. I'm talking to adults. We all need Jesus. Come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths of your scripture as laid forth in this confessional statement. We need you. We desperately need you. And I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that they would not leave this place. Holy Spirit, ooh, give them no rest whatsoever. Give them no rest. Show them the beauty of God the Father who loves them, who sent his Son to live the life that they could not live. Do this for your glory and the sake of your people. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.